If I offered you a billion dollars with only one stipulation, being that you would have to count it out one dollar at a time, would you take it? You could do a lot with a billion dollars. Actually, so much that you don't even conceive probably how much a billion dollars really is. I know that I don't. But all I know is that you could have all the luxury you've ever desired. And at first blush, that sounds like a pretty good deal. A little bit of simple work. Okay, well, maybe a lot of simple work with a massive payout at the end. But then you start to do the math. Let's assume that you can count one bill per second and then you figure out that one million seconds elapses every 12 days and you say, well, that's not too bad because a million and a billion aren't that far off from each other. It's just the difference between an M and a B. It's just the difference between a couple of zeros. But in fact, they are very, very, very far off because for a million seconds to elapse in 12 days means that one billion seconds elapses in 31.7 years. Now, assuming that you can't count for 32 years straight, you need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to exercise, you need to have some kind of social interaction with people so you don't go insane. Let's just say for the sake of argument that all of those things together take about half of that time. That means that it will take you 63.4 years to count $1 billion in ones. And if you didn't start counting until you were 15 years old, that means you'd finish when you were 78 and a half years old. But the average American life expectancy is currently 76.6 years old. And all of a sudden, my generous offer of a billion dollars doesn't seem like that big of a benefit to you, does it? It's a serious thing. Considerations of time, of money, of priorities. In fact, it's one of the most challenging things in this life is to number your days and to not get sucked in to the trap of being so short-sighted. A trap that all of us fall into again and again and again. Jesus knows about this propensity to be short-sighted and how it is common to all of us especially when we only live on this earth for a very short amount of time. The days feel long sometimes. But when you contrast your entire lifespan to the length of eternity, we see that life is indeed very short. And yet we are tempted. We're tempted to focus so much on what is right in front of us right now that we lose sight of what is coming, both the good and the bad. And so Jesus warns us about this in Luke chapter 16. Open your Bible with me if you have a copy with you. Luke 16 is a parable of the uttermost consequence. It is a warning, a stern warning about the danger of money and the nature of time and the horrors of hell. This is not a fun warning to receive. But it is a warning that we would do well to heed. Follow with me. 
Luke 16, starting at verse 19, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your life received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, so he, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The story begins with the description, albeit brief, of the rich man and the poor man. Their life on earth could not be more different from each other. Even though they were in very close physical proximity, one in the house and one out in the gate, they could not be more different. The rich man in this story isn't given a name. In verse 19, it describes him. It says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This man lived like a prince. Purple was the color of royalty. As you know, it was derived from murex, which is a rare sea muscle. For somebody to have purple clothes was a big deal. An Egyptian fine linen was expensive and desirable because it had this perfect combination. It looked nice as you wore it. It felt nice on your skin and it kept you cool in this hot and arid climate. And if comfort and style weren't enough, it would appear that this man ate very, very well every single day. It says that he feasted sumptuously. The best clothes, the best food, the best wine in any amount all of the time were at his fingertips. He had all of the luxuries of Rome, even though he was a Jew. The poor man in the story is named Lazarus. Not to be confused with the Lazarus that Jesus 
raised from the dead. This man was ill or disabled. It says that he was laid at the gate of the rich man, presumably by his friends or family members and presumably to beg. His illness and lack of nutrition left him in such a state that he longed for the food scraps from Lazarus's table. He could probably smell them as they were cooking and he sat outside the gate. And his illness was such that he had sores over his body. And these sores were oozing or weeping. He longed for the food, scraps, but no servant came to deliver them. Instead, he suffered in hunger and he suffered physically. And as it turned out, unclean wild dogs would come and lick the sores on the man's body, providing him with relief. And these dogs were more compassionate in this way than the rich man and his household. The name Lazarus means God has helped. But when you read the story, it certainly doesn't look like God has helped this man. Both men die. Verse 20 tells us that the rich man was buried. And you can imagine what that must be like. It was a grand affair. All of the who's who in the area would be in attendance. The most decadent attire, the pomp and circumstance and formality of a state funeral. He was probably buried in a crypt with his ancestors, with celebration and honor among men, but with no celebration or honor among the heavenly host. There is no mention of Lazarus' burial. That could be because he didn't have one. And if he did, there was no celebration attached. He was most likely buried in a mass grave outside of town or maybe even thrown into a burn pile. As was often the case with the poor and homeless. There was no celebration or honor among men, but we will see that there was almost certainly a celebration and an honor with God. As Lazarus is taken by the angels to heaven or Abraham's bosom to be at Abraham's side, and the rich man is taken to Hades. Now, you might be tempted at this point in the story to think that the rich man went to hell because he was rich and Lazarus went to heaven because he was poor. But that's not the case. That's not the point of the story and it's not consistent in any way with Jesus' other's teaching. In fact, the rich man went to hell because he didn't have faith in God. Now, how do you know that, Pastor Nick? It doesn't say anything about what he thought or what he believed. We knew that because of his actions. Jesus said that the law and the prophets could all be summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you have one, you will necessarily do the other. The rich man has a lack of faith and it's evidenced in the fact that he didn't follow God's word. It's evidenced in the fact that he doesn't necessarily even believe in God's word as we'll see later in the story. Because if he did, this would have resulted in him providing some, at least some kind of care 
for the man outside of his gate. Now, you read the story and you try to think about this in modern terms. And I tend to think about what might my own temptations be if I were the rich man. Why, what would motivate me to be so distant from the man sitting outside the gate? Perhaps the rich man convinced himself that it just wasn't his responsibility that this was somebody else's responsibility to take care of Lazarus. Or maybe he thought that Lazarus got what was coming to him. He made some poor choices somewhere back there, and now he's reaping the consequences of those poor choices. Those would be things that we might commonly think. And almost certainly, his wealth formed a callus around his heart because with that amount of wealth often can come pride, and that pride is met with a sense of self-sufficiency that dulls one's senses to the urgency with regard to the eternal. And so he had no motivation to serve God because his wealth allowed him to be the one who was served, not to be the one who would serve. But he found out, as the wise old Colonel Sanders so aptly quipped. There's no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery because you can't do business from there. The scene changes. The circumstances are now reversed and the tone gets significantly worse. Lazarus is existing in comfort and the rich man is now in anguish. And it would seem that this comfort and this anguish are infinitely greater than the comfort and anguish, both in their effect and in their duration, than the comfort and anguish that each man had received on earth. The rich man cries out to Abraham, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It's interesting. The man uses a covenantal name to address Abraham. He calls him Father Abraham. He indeed was his ethnic father. And though he did not recognize him as such by being faithful in this life, now that he is in the afterlife, he wants to claim the privileges of his Jewish heritage, of being one of the chosen people, of being one of God's faithful. And so he calls out to him as kin, Father, have mercy. He also recognizes Lazarus. And he even calls him out by name, which points to the fact that he probably knew who he was as he sat outside of his gate on earth. And even now, in the midst of torment, he doesn't beg, he doesn't ask. It appears in his arrogance that he dares to command Abraham to send this poor beggar to be his servant and give him a bit of relief. He was an influential and maybe even religious person who is now in hell. And you start to put these things together and it paints the picture of the man. He was a religious Jew who expected to inherit eternal life. 
but he didn't have faith and thus he inherited eternal torment. He was observant in his surroundings in earth, but he was callous toward them and did not act in mercy. He commanded people on earth to do his bidding, but his commands fall on deaf ears in heaven. And it's interesting as you read the story, Lazarus doesn't say a word. He didn't complain about his lot in life while he was on earth, and he doesn't gloat about his lot in heaven now that he is there. There's a humble, godly silence. And as the story continues, what informs us even more than what we can piece together of the man is what is happening in his surroundings. Because very little is said about heaven. Did you notice that? And there is more that is said about hell. The torment of flames. This is a warning about the terrors of hell. It's difficult for us to grasp. It's difficult for me to get my mind around. But so great is the penalty for sin that anguish defines this man's reality and it consumes his every thought. The tongues of dogs gave Lazarus relief on earth and it is no small irony that it is this man's tongue that needs relief now that he is in hell, that he would do anything he could for but one drop of water which will vanish off of his tongue instantaneously but would give him relief. And he will get none. Lazarus had anguish in life, but luxury in death. <laughs> the rich man had luxury in life, but anguish in death. Friends, this is the nature of judgment in hell. And Jesus warns us about it here. And he warns us about it in many other places. And let's take a step back and acknowledge how we often respond to those warnings. Some of us will ignore those warnings. Some of us will pretend that it doesn't exist. Others of us will take exception to the fact that there is a warning at all. Because who is this guy that's just trying to ruin my agenda for life? or make my life less fun than it otherwise would be if I just had my way. Rico Tice illustrates that idea about warning and our inherent sort of bristling at being warned about such serious things. He says that I was once in Australia visiting a friend and he took me to a beach on Botany Bay and I decided that I would go for a swim. And so just as I was taking my shirt off, he looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going for a swim. He said, well, what about these signs? And he pointed over to a sign that I had not previously seen, which very simply said, warning, sharks. <laughs> and with all of the confidence of an Englishman abroad, I said, don't be ridiculous. I'll be fine. And he said, hey, listen, mate. 200 Australians have died in shark attacks 
You've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or to ruin your fun. (laughs) You're of age. You decide. Rico said, I decided not to go for a swim. (laughs) You know, there are many words about Jesus, from Jesus, about hell. And almost all of the words about hell actually come from Jesus himself. They are not there to wreck your fun. (laughs) They're there as a loving warning. Jesus talked about hell because he does not want people to go there. (laughs) Jesus died so that people wouldn't have to go there. The only way to get to hell is to trample over the words and the work of Jesus on the cross. And that becomes a great motivator for us to heed those words and those warnings and a great motivator for us in our evangelism and sharing those words to other people. People. So when we hear a warning, even a hard warning, you have to decide. Is this warning here to save you? Or is this warning here to ruin your fun? Upon having his request denied due to the great chasm that exists so that no one may pass between the two places, the rich man immediately thinks of his family. So bad is his torment, he desires his brothers to be warned. This is the first time in this story that he has thought of someone other than himself. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. But he contests, but if someone comes from the dead, then they will repent recognizing that repentance is really what's needed. Abraham denies him again, and in summary, he says, God's word is enough. Not a spirit from the afterlife will convince them more than God's word would convince them. Even now, even in the torment of Hades, the rich man still doesn't trust God's word. He didn't hear it because he didn't want to hear it. Likewise, his brothers won't hear the word of the Lord unless they want to hear it. Jesus himself declared on the road to Emmaus that all of the law and the prophets end up pointing to himself. The rich man implies that God's word is not enough to save his brothers. And by extension, it wasn't enough to save him either. But Abraham affirms that God's word is indeed enough. It was enough to point him to Christ. It was enough to lead to faith in Christ. It was enough to bring about salvation. It was enough for him. It is enough for his brothers. And it is enough for you. And the parable ends. Jesus gives no explanation. None is needed. The horror of hell lands heavy. And every parable has a principle that it's seeking to communicate. There are a lot of applications, and we'll talk about some in a minute, but there's one principle that this parable is seeking to communicate, and you might express it something like this. Watch out. (laughs) Watch out that your temporary luxury doesn't lead you to eternal suffering. 
a short-sighted life was wasted on luxury. An opportunity to follow God faithfully declined. A responsibility to care for those in need ignored. And the torment of hell becomes his reality. Watch out. So the same thing doesn't happen to you. Watch out that your temporary luxury doesn't lead to eternal suffering. Friends, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this parable. Let me quickly move through six in our remaining time together. The first one is very simply this. Let a healthy fear of hell drive you back to Jesus as the one who forgives you and saves you. This morning, like every Sunday morning, our elders and a number of other people in the church gather to pray and I was asked, what is one thing that you would want for the congregation this morning in light of the sermon? And this is what it is, that you would be afraid of hell. Because so many of us today are not. Do you live your life in view of eternity? Or have you fallen prey to the temptation that so many others have to live a short-sighted life in your affairs? Auguste Rodin was a French Impressionist sculptor. And though many people might not recognize his name, most people are familiar with some of his work. Rodin created the sculpture known as The Thinker. You've seen it probably before. And what you may not realize about the thinker is that the thinker was really a study. The large sculpture of the thinker was really a study for a much smaller version of the thinker that he had done to sit on top of his greatest masterpiece, which is entitled The Gates of Hell. For years people have been wondering what the thinker is thinking about. No, he's not wondering about where he left his clothes last night. He's not pondering the details of that fine dining French cuisine that he will have next weekend. He's not planning his next vacation in serious thought of which beach to go to first. He's not thinking about where his kids will go to college, nor worried about how he'll pay for it. He isn't strategizing about his retirement portfolio. What the thinker is contemplating is an eternity of judgment separated from God as he sits on the very top of and looks down at the gates of hell. And as he looks, and as you get a glimpse, you can see that these gates of hell depict innumerable beings writhing in agony on their way to judgment. And as an artistic vision, it's absolutely striking. And just when you think that you could spend an immeasurable amount of time gazing at the gates of hell, trying to absorb all of its detail, You are taken aback by the thought. And you say, Lord, I hope that I will have no occasion to gaze upon it at all. 
When was the last time that you considered something like this? I mean, really thought about it. Really thought about what eternity would be like in hell, separated from God. Let a healthy fear of hell drive you back to the one who can save you. The second lesson is that there's only one life and there are no more chances when you die. We know that to be true, but we often don't live like it. God is so amazing in that he gives us chance after chance after chance in this life. He will give you multiple chances to respond to him. He gives you second, third, and fourth, and fifth chances when you sin against him. He is so gracious and patient with you while we live. (laughs) And we do not know when that life will come to an end. And when we do die, there will be no amount of crying or mercy that will be heard or addressed by him. The other day I was delayed in the middle of the night in the airport in Atlanta, Georgia. And I witnessed a couple miss their flight to Jacksonville, Florida. And they were pleading with the gate agent to be let on the flight. But the door to the jetway was closed. Nobody was going in and nobody was coming out. You might even say that there was a fixed chasm between the terminal and the plane. The distance was too far and the barrier was too strong. Friends, your chance to put your faith in Christ and to follow him faithfully, even in the small decisions of your life, and to recognize him as the Lord and King over you, your chance is right now. You need but receive the forgiveness that he offers to you in faith and make him the Lord of your life. You will not have another chance after you die. Lesson number three is that money has the ability to callous your heart. Jesus gives countless warnings against the accumulation of wealth for personal gain. The backdrop of this parable is certainly the trappings of luxury created a callous heart in the rich man toward God, toward his word, and toward the needs of those around him. But here's the thing. Even though you don't live in the lap of luxury, This is a warning for you because whether you make $50,000 a year or $500,000 or $5 million, it is like all of us think to ourselves, well, I'm just looking at the person that makes more than I do and I I, I know that I'm not rich because he is kind of rich. And we excuse ourselves from the commands of the Lord in such a way. But here's the thing. When you focus on your money and the luxuries that it provides you more than you ought to, the callus starts to form. And so watch out. Watch out that your temporary luxury doesn't lead you to eternal suffering. Moving quickly, lesson number four is that the torment and anguish of hell are real. The message of our culture today is that let death sort death out when the time comes. 
How could God possibly be loving if hell were real? And yet we forget that God's justice, which we so long for when things are bad for us, we forget that that justice is coexistent with God's love and he will execute that justice to its full effect in the final judgment. We minimize the final judgment because we minimize the grievous nature of our sin. We minimize the grievous nature of our sin because we minimize the profound holiness of God. We don't want to deal with the justice of God when it doesn't serve us, only when it does serve us. But my friends, justice is coming in its full effect and we need but think of the most horrible things that could possibly happen to you in this life and then realize that they all, every single one of them, pale in comparison to what eternal torment apart from God will actually look like and feel like and sound like and smell like for those who don't know him. So watch out. Lesson number five is the good news. That God will help you. (laughs) The name Lazarus means God will help. And even though he physically suffered in his days, and from the outside it didn't look like God helped him, you know on the inside God most certainly helped him. He helped him in faith and in long-suffering He helped him, and it's expressed in the fact that angels carried him to Abraham's side. And when Lazarus on that day opened his eyes, all of the pain of hunger, all of the pain of humiliation, all of the pain of illness and the sores, all were completely forgotten and never remembered again as he beheld something more beautiful than he could have possibly conceived of on earth as he glanced around the corner of the gate toward the kitchen of the rich man. And it was all worth it. It was all worth it for him to suffer in this life and cling to God as his provider for the thing that would be his to come. And it is all worth it for you when life is hard and things are difficult to cling to Christ and to plead and beg with him to alleviate your pain and he may or may not do it, but to continue to trust in his provision for you, it is worth it. You may feel like the days are long, but friends, the decades are very short. And then you will be in comfort and luxury beyond anything you can conceive of right now. And that's good news. (laughs) Lesson number six is that God's word leads to salvation. His word leads to salvation. So open your ears and your eyes and listen and see. Don't wait for miracles or visions of dead relatives or unique experiences to give you the spiritual jolt that you need. They will not cause spiritually deaf people to hear God's voice. He speaks to us through his word. And so listen and follow and obey. David Siemens ends his book, Great Healing Grace, with the story of the emperor Franz Joseph I. He writes that for more than 600 years, the Habsburgs exercised political power in Europe. 
When Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria died in the year 1916, his was the last of the extravagant imperial funerals. A procession of dignitaries and elegantly dressed court personages escorted the coffin, draped in the black and gold imperial colors, to the accompaniment of military bands, somber dirges, and by the light of torches, the cortege descended the stairs of the local monastery in Vienna. And at the bottom was a great iron door leading to the Habsburgs family crypt. Behind the door was the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna, the officer in charge followed the prescribed ceremony established centuries before. Open, he cried. Who goes there, responded the cardinal. We bear the remains of the imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I. By the grace of God, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, defender of the faith, prince of Bohemia, Moravia, grand duke of Lombardy and Sturgia. And the officer continued to list the emperor's 37 titles. We know him not, the cardinal replied. Who goes there? And so the officer spoke again, this time using a much abbreviated and less ostentatious title reserved for times of expediency. But the cardinal replied again, we know him not. Who goes there? The officer tried a third time, stripping the emperor of all but the humblest of titles. He said, we bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us all. And at that, the doors swung open and Franz Joseph was admitted because in death, all are reduced to the same level. Neither wealth nor fame can open the way of salvation only God, by his grace, given to those who humbly acknowledge their need for it. So be warned. Watch out that your temporary luxury doesn't lead you to eternal suffering. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you in this moment that we do not like to receive hard warnings. And yet, because we don't like to even think upon the things of hell, we need them all the more. And so today, for the one who is fearful of hell, I pray that you would give them great confidence in the work of our Lord and Christ Jesus, who saves us from such a fate and leads us to our eternity with you. For those in our midst today who maybe have a callous on their heart,
I pray that you would peel away the layers for those who do not fear hell or ever think about the afterlife, that today you would prick through that callous, that you would give the right and healthy fear for the sake of their good and your glory. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace and his mercy. We thank you for his encouragement and even for his warning. Help us to heed it now, we pray. Amen.